and welcome to the 51st episode of Total Pod Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here once again and always by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, you stupendously senile steers? Coming up this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we talk the release of Baldur's Gate 3, a new season begins for Call of Duty, and we round off the news with some Elden Ring speculation. Ooh, tasty. We top this episode off with the finale of both our playthroughs of Bioshock Infinite, where we finally uncover the truth we've been searching for. But before all of that, let's crack out the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch. Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash hoodafunk. Okay, James, I'm going to hand this one over to you first. What have you been playing this week? Uh, nice and easy this week, man. I have played one game, uh, Remnant 2. I carried on playing it, man. Um, obviously buying it last week on release. Very nice. Putting in the hours. Yeah, finished it. So I haven't done everything because obviously you re-roll worlds and you get different bosses and things like that, but I did complete the game. Wow, very good progress. Damn, I definitely wasn't expecting you to come back this week having completed it. Nor was I. How long did it take you roughly before uh, you, you got to the finish? I think all in with, let's say, three hours of scrap grinding. It was 28 hours when I finished it. So let's say 25 hours for main campaign, all on veteran. Pure playthrough. Right, yeah. okay. And that didn't involve maximising my weapon or anything like that. I only had two class... Well, one class maxed out. I actually wasn't quite maxed out in the second class. But then, So I've said that there with absolutely no context. So last week I spoke about how the class system's a bit different and there's different archetypes you can unlock and things like that. Yes, and you can kind of switch between them quite freely, it sounded like. You can, but not only that, you can also have two active at the same time. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. a subclass as well. Yeah, so unfortunately you don't get both classes' main power. You can only have your primary archetype as the main power, which is probably a good right. thing, otherwise it would be OP. Yeah, it kind of sounds like you'd have two different ultimates which yeah, is yeah, pretty much obviously too much so basically to give you the example that would have made it just like way too easy and i'm glad they didn't do it I, my main for the most thing was handler as i spoke about last week so i had my doggo who could revive me every minute and a half right right if i used i incorrectly called it the commander last time it's the challenger archetype um, okay. their power is that when they take fatal damage um they basically hit the ground hulk up and they come back to life with 50 percent health at first but it upgrades to 100 percent later and three seconds of invulnerability oh wow okay but that only happens once every 10 minutes that one only 10 minutes okay yeah, yeah. that's a long long cooldown you only exactly. get that the once so you save that for a boss but it essentially means you can just run in tank an absolute bunch of damage and come back at full health ready to go again and retreat which is how i beat the final boss yeah nice just dump all your abilities and run away sounds awesome to be fair towards the end of the game um playing solo as well some of the bosses are very hard and they have a lot of health right okay 
So I found that I'd always go in at first trying to have my dog as the main with the commander as the backup because he does have some useful perks around uh, making your load lighter so you can roll quicker and things like that. Right. Um, and I think you also do damage to enemies close to you and I was getting quite close to enemies to do damage yeah. so it was quite useful. And I was trying to do them with that but eventually I had to be like, no, put the challenger as your main, have that one big revive if, in case you ever need it. Yeah. Um, and that was actually super useful and still is. Do the bosses suffer a similar issue in terms of the fact that there's just plenty of mobs always spawning around, or do you actually get some clean boss fights in this one? I'm trying desperately to think if there are any, like, pure clean boss fights. I just want to be pure. The final boss is pretty clear, but it has a lot of stuff going on. Not mobs, but a lot of stuff going on. Fine. I don't want to give too much away because yeah, it's obviously yeah. still a new game, but phase two in particular. Good God. Sorry, I just gave <laughs> I, I gave away there's two phases in the final boss. Sorry. That's that's kind of expected, I think, at this point, honestly. Yeah, it's the same in Remnant 1. Yeah. Be disappointing if they didn't. So in terms of mobs specifically, no, it's much, much, much better in this one because for context for our listeners and viewers, one of mine, and I think Will's too's main complaints about Remnant for the Ashes 1 was that a lot of the bosses had a slightly artificial intelligence curve due to the number of mobs that they had with them. And a lot of the time you would just get rushed just as the tables were turning on the boss as well. So it definitely made the boss fight seem more drawn out. It certainly did, and especially because when we played together, I think we played it on hard, didn't we? Like, yeah. So that made it even worse. But it's still in there. There are still mobs in a lot of the boss fights, but I never felt as overwhelmed as I did playing the first one. Now, again, some of that could be a skill issue. I've definitely got better at these games since I played Remnant 1. I, I think it was just all round much more balanced. And really, that's the one thing I'll echo from last week that has maintained itself throughout my whole playtime with this game. If you enjoyed Remnant from the Ashes, the first game, this game is just everything that Remnant was, but just better. Mm. Would you say that you had a better time fighting your way through these bosses in this game? I thought that the boss design in the previous one, in terms of their actual attacks, was pretty fun to fight against uh, in Remnant. It was fairly varied as well from boss to boss do you think that that's had an improvement in this one round i would say there are definitely sort of more styles of boss in this one but it does follow a very similar pattern i don't recall there being any bosses where i thought this is bullshit in terms of okay the hitboxes are f***ed or mm. oh that's just ridiculously unfair or something like that there were times where i thought the, like f*** this boss because i was dying a lot sure <laughs> Salty tears. Yeah, but it's the same as anything. Once you get the timing and know the patterns, uh, you can do it. Yeah. The final boss is exactly where you'd expect it to be in terms of difficulty level. Uh, And it's quite a spike as well, which considering a lot of the game is relatively tough too, is a very, very nice and welcome challenge. You definitely Mm. get a sense of achievement beating this game. At least I did. Very nice. I'm definitely looking forward to checking this one out when I get around to picking it up. Yeah. I think there's still a few more things that I need to knock off my list before I go ahead and jump into yet another new title. Just a few, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are too many of them. What are we going to do? The usual. But, uh, you know, this is definitely one that I intend to pick up. And I'm looking forward to playing it through with you as well, because Remnant 1 really delivered on that fun co-op experience. And this one just looks like it's more of the same. I think it will probably be even better as well, actually, because with co-op... They'll have way more remotes, of course, of course. (laughs) Loads more remotes. But not just that, it's also the synergy we could have, because you might be a handler, for example. If I played with you, I'd probably use a new character and wouldn't be a handler to start with. And the handler's great because a lot of its main perks are team based so like the every single archetype gets their own special perk which does various things and you as only active when you have the archetype active the handler's one uh, reduces friendly fire damage for example 
So at full level, friendly fire is 80% less damage than it would be normally, which is handy. There's some cool synergy things we could do with essentially four archetypes potentially running around with two characters. So yeah, could be fun. I thoroughly recommend it to anyone who enjoys uh, co-op Souls-like experiences as well. It's really fantastic. One of the things that it has improved on quite a bit, even though it wasn't a bad thing in Remnant from the Ashes, but the variety of weapons, I think, has seen a vast improvement, particularly on the melee weapon side, actually. In the first game, you really had a choice of hammer, sword, or hatchet. I don't recall finding any other cool melee weapons. No, that was pretty much it. Variations on that theme. Might have been a spear. I don't recall there being a spear at all, no. No. And in this one, you do have spears. You've got staffs, staves whatever the plural of that is. Uh, You've got a whole array of swords, you've got hammers, and so far at least, the boss weapons that you're able to create, if the boss gives you an opportunity to make a weapon, have all been really cool looking, and they have great effects. The weapon mods, there's a lot more of them. They've just, as when I say they've improved everything, I, I really mean it. They've put a lot more thought into it. Feel like they might have had a bit more money for this one. Oh yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, they're getting a new IP off the ground the first time around. Yeah, and this exactly. Is, yeah, it's going to have, uh, have have some more money behind it. You'd hope, at least, yeah, exactly. the success of the first one. Yeah, and this one's, uh, I saw a notification on Steam, it's already passed a million units sold, and that was about four days ago at the time of oh, recording. Awesome. So really doing well. And Yeah, uh, great news for the team. Yeah, and I love to see it. Really cool. Hopefully this franchise can keep on growing. Yeah, it'd be cool to see. It sounds like they've explored and taken some new directions with this iteration. So look forward to seeing what they do do in the future, whether it be in the form of Remnant 3 or even a new IP. Exactly. I'm, I'm here for it. Gunfire Games, massive shout outs, respect. But apart from that, that really has taken up all of my time this week. Um, it's been excellent. And even though I've finished it, I still want to keep on playing and see the bosses I haven't done. So who knows if that'll be what I've played again next week. But uh, that's all I got for this week, man. How about you? What have you been up to? So this week, as promised, I've actually delved back into the world of Wolong. Uh, you'll probably be unsurprised to hear that I've actually created yet another new character. Number four? No, this is uh, number three still. Number uh, three, I think okay. we talked about it a little bit off pod uh, yeah. last time that I was planning on starting it again. I did go ahead and do that, watch the game from the beginning. Being able to go back from the start with the knowledge that I'd learned, I had a really fun time working my way through. I was both kind of exploring a little bit more the stealth mechanics in the game, experimenting with how you can sort of sneak up on enemies without necessarily needing to crouch uh, and a few other little things like that, as well as experimenting with some more of the weapons as well and stepping a little bit out of my comfort zone, which had at that point very much been the katana with a little bit of the uh, the bladed staff. And have you found any that you're particularly vibing with at this point? Again, probably still too early into it to have found every single one maybe i think i'm about maybe five bosses deep at this point i think i just beat something that was called like the lord of heaven or something like that that was the uh the guy that i've just beaten so maybe that he's boss number four maybe but I'm having a really fun time playing through that. I'm experimenting with the morale mechanics a little bit, starting to get a better understanding of that, uh, how uh, your level resets at the beginning of every level and slowly through defeating enemies, tougher and tougher enemies, you kind of rack up morale points, as well as finding a few of the hidden flags around the levels. I've been enjoying sort of searching around for those. Uh, the level design is fairly simplistic, I think, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of nice set piece and environmental things to look at. A lot of the parving seems fairly kind of bog standard the weapon that i've been enjoying the most to go back to that point was actually the the staff without the blade very very fine choice yeah it's a very fast weapon it's faster than the katana and i've been switching between that as well as the ring pommel saber which is actually it's an upgraded version of the very first sword that you get in the game yeah 
So the reason why I chose the Ring Pommel Saber is actually because it levels up according to your Earth ability, which is the one that I've been progressing the furthest in the game. Is that that's equipment load, isn't it? That's the main stat you get from that. Uh, the main stat that it upgrades is your health. Actually, I've been uh, really pumping your health, yeah, uh, which I've been finding very useful. I haven't actually bumped into any equipment stat issues up until very recently in the game, uh, where I think I was previously using a lot of light armor. I've now found some sort of higher rank stuff that has quite a big jump in defense yeah, yeah. that I'm tempted to use as well, because I am quite enjoying the fact that I'm fairly tanky in this game. Yeah, yeah. Being familiar with the moveset really does help as well. I found that that's quite a useful thing to have. I have actually recently picked up a, a set of kind of rare looking tonfa type things, and I'm interested to check those out. I haven't really had a chance to look at them yet, and I don't know what they scale with. So the tonfa, for people that are wondering, kind of look like police truncheons that you, uh, you know, you kind of hold with one hand and they support your forearms as you fight. I've also been having quite an enjoyable time working out the new weapon arts in the game. Uh, we refer to them as weapon arts for people that are familiar with Dark Souls. I can't remember, honestly, what they're called in this game. I never get the syntax down for these games when I play them. I always just relate back to Dark Souls terminology. I mean, to be honest, I'm now all I can think of is weapon arts. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> but the ability with the staff has a few varied ones. One of them's pretty cool because you can knock someone up into the air and yeah. then slap them away again. That's a really fun one to discover. I'm also using mostly kind of the ring pommel saber thing just to cover a bit of ground. They just kind of leap forward and do a slashing attack, which yeah, is very useful. That's handy, that one. And I've finally been able to get to grips with the divine beast power-ups that you can get. You have two forms of this, one which is kind of like a passive buff ability, depending on which divine beast you have and what it's scaling with so the one i'm using at the moment it turns you into iron skin and you're able to take a load more damage and able to withstand a lot more attacks and the more offensive ability for that one sets a load of spikes that shoot out of the ground ah, and kind of continue yeah. to damage enemies over time it does absolutely loads of damage as well yeah it does that i've used that i tried other ones I, that's the one i stuck with the whole game it's really good. Very, very useful in combat and very, very useful passively as well. But yeah. uh, I'm looking forward to checking out some of the later abilities. Like you, I haven't really got into experimenting with uh, some of the other ones that I've unlocked. I think I've maybe got like another two now because it seems like every major boss drops one unless I'm mistaking that item for something else that you get. But I seem to be getting quite a lot of these things. I think you had there's five or six in the game. I'm also kind of experimenting a little bit with the companions in the game as well. I'm getting a bit more of a full roster there. Uh, going backwards and forwards between taking them with me and then not taking them with me as well. A little bit like Code Vein, I find that sometimes having the companions with you can make the combat a little bit more scrappy and messy. Harder to predict in terms of attack patterns. So occasionally I'm finding myself taking off my companions and just exploring the levels as well. The AI sucks too. A bunch of my guys end up tracking themselves off of buildings and then coming back with one HP yeah. and several Several times I've actually yeah. stopped to revive someone and then died as a result. They're basically more useful for distraction fodder than they are for actual fighting. Yeah, absolutely. And then occasionally they'll actually manage to do one of the special moves at an appropriate time and actually do a little bit of damage. But Oh, no, I never saw that. Oh, <laughs> you deny ever seeing that. <laughs> All I would say is it's worth taking them out with you to explore the levels because they level up naturally. And when they get to sworn brother status, even the ladies, because Koi Tecmo didn't think of that one, apparently. Sworn sisters aren't a thing. If you get them to the sworn brother status you do get a passive buff whenever they're with you and that can be quite useful there's a couple that are really good one is damage reduction one is you gain arrows when you do an attack or something like that so there's some really useful some of them are shit. 
But the other thing that might be of interest to you is when you get the Sworn Brother status, is you get a copy of all their equipment at four star. Oh, okay, that's cool. And that would definitely yes. outrank anything I've got at the moment anyway. So yeah, that's cool news. It's also that their armors have buffs that are sort of link together. Like, so if you're wearing four pieces of the outfit, you'll get a level four buff. Right, okay. Okay, yeah, like cumulative buffing sort of thing between armor pieces. Yeah, basically, yeah. So typically it's five things and it's sort of the... F- three pieces of armor and a weapon and then maybe a a talisman or something like that and some of them are really really powerful so you can experiment more with builds by doing that so it's worth taking them with you exploring but for bosses unless you want a really really weak meat shield that you should never revive don't ever bother reviving companions in a boss fight you will die (laughs) yeah 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 like you just will top tip there (laughs) And I'm finding the game so far to just be a really satisfying experience. I don't think that there's any boss that has quite lived up to the challenge of my first time through the very first boss. Although I will say on my most recent playthrough, I defeated both stages combined in under a minute because I knew exactly what I was doing and just thrashed out those uh, stance breaks straight into the heavy attacks where you deal a bunch of damage following that. That's the thing about that first boss. Like It's tough because it's the first thing you fight and it's a proper skill check. Yeah. Once you've done it a few times it's okay yeah it's very much just the lesson as well in terms of the mechanics of the game how you're absolutely supposed to be sustaining attacks playing aggressively breaking their stance and then following up with a heavy attack to punish the uh, the break of stance sort of thing and that's crucial because there are some bosses that that's basically the only damage you do to them so i can believe that yeah i can believe that yeah. definitely later on in the game yeah I've been actually getting involved with some of the online elements as well in the game. I did actually get invaded the other day and was able to beat my attacker, which was a quite satisfying experience to do. And I'm interested to see just how often I get invaded as I play through the rest of the game as well. My only experience with a human invader was uh, they invaded me in the middle of a fight and didn't do the correct etiquette thing of waiting for me to back out of said fight so I could duel them properly. (laughs) The honourable thing. (laughs) Well, it is. It's it's etiquette. Yeah, they didn't just rain of arrows you while you're in the middle of a boss fight no it wasn't a boss fight thankfully but that sort of thing i was was right outside a boss room funnily enough i was beating on like three or four enemies and i saw that i got invaded and i was like oh that's fine i've only ever been seen dark souls pvp i was like yeah they'll wait for me it'll be fine and no didn't just came and got involved and ended up killing me so then i turned invasions off because i was like (laughs) it's only game why you have to be mad? Yeah, well, I've yet to lose one, so maybe my mind will change about how much I enjoy these things after yeah. I've had a similar experience. But for now, they'll yeah. stay on. Oh, losing wouldn't have bothered me. It's the etiquette thing. Like, if, I, if I'm <laughs> fighting mobs and I'm clearly not focusing on you, don't just interrupt my game like that. That one person spoiled it for you for the rest of the game. Pretty much. Although, to be fair, <laughs> that was maybe, like, three quarters of the way through the game, and that was the first time I got invaded. I didn't even know it was on. Yeah, I mean, i got to say, I, I had actually forgotten that you mentioned uh, having that experience earlier, so. So yeah. I'd actually forgotten that invasions were even a thing when it happened to me. Yeah, but it's one of them ones. It's uh, it's fun fighting other players because you it does improve your skill level too, right? And the net code is pretty solid as well from that single encounter that I did have. So uh, at least better than anything I'd experienced in Elden Ring so far. So I yeah. know, oh, agreed. Yeah, the one guy that f***ed me over did it in with no lag whatsoever. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> pure skill. Yeah. Pure skill. Also, I wanted to get a little touch onto the spells that I've been exploring as well, considering that you get quite a few of these as you progress down your skill tree. So my spells mostly having specced into the earth tree mostly revolve around lightning abilities, yeah. weirdly. And healing, right? Yeah, and I'm getting some healing abilities as well, where you can cast plants from the ground. Uh, they increase the amount of spirit that you gain from attacking enemies, which is really useful because the more spirit you have, the more spirit you get from each attack, you're able to access more of your heavy moves and things 
things like that, or at least deal more damage when you're using those sorts of abilities. Yeah, because for those that don't know, Spirit kind of works like stamina, but also doesn't at the same time. Yeah, because you also gain positive stamina the more you successfully attack an enemy that you can then spend on either magic abilities or dodging more or deflecting more. Yeah, and if someone counters you, you lose a lot of your spirit and you can go into negative spirit, which basically just means you can't run as fast, you can't dodge as well, and you can't use heavy moves. So some of the spells that I've been using, one of them summons a plant from the ground and when you press the same ability again, it kind of summons a lightning shard down, which hits the plant and makes it explode. That damages nearby enemies. That's a pretty useful one. Other lightning-based attacks that I've got I send a kind of a beam of lightning straight out forwards in front of me, which damages any enemies in its path as it travels along the ground. And then the other ability that I've been using a lot just summons kind of like a hail of lightning down yeah. to the ground, which lights up everything, which is really powerful and really fun as well. Yeah, that sounds kind of like the ice one I was using. Very good. Yeah, it reminds me of, I think it's called like Rain of Arrows or something like that in Elden Ring. It's just that, but it's a lightning equivalent in this. Fair. Very nice. Can't complain. Yeah, yeah. Really good stuff. Kind of trying to go between melee combat, using the weapon arts, using the divine beast buffs, as well as then going into the magic as well. There's a lot of things you can do in this game, and I was complaining a little bit last week about the combat quite not being as in-depth as I wanted, and I think that I can't really say that anymore now that I've figured out how to quickly switch between the weapons in combat. It's not quite as fluid as I'd want it to be, but you can do it still fairly quickly in combat, so it does still have the similar kind of benefits. And using those in conjunction with the weapon-specific abilities as well, well really does make the combat feel much more varied enjoying it a lot more than i was the first time around and really benefiting from restarting the game yeah i mean all i can think of to say to that is you see guys me restarting games every f***ing time is worth it I think that's pretty much all I've got to say uh, about Wolong this week so i think it's time that we took us on to the gaming news So first up on our list of news articles, from our friends over at Gamerant, Baldur's Gate 3 receives praise for not including microtransactions or in-game purchases, offering a complete and immersive gaming experience from the start. What a breath of fresh air in this current climate of being absolutely plugged with DLC and turning games that previously weren't into live-action games well, and things like this that. This is where my objection comes in. Is Baldur's Gate not a single-player RPG game? Have I missed something? I would say the same thing. Was Diablo not originally a single-player RPG game that got turned into an online then slash massively multiplayer online experience. I feel like this is just the sign of a game company that's held off doing that when it seems like in a climate where much more game companies are moving away and seeing the money in online experiences and even in some cases like Diablo converting their single player experience more towards a seasonal based player every day get your daily bonuses type of experience. Uh, I, I kind of disagree with that statement. I think Diablo 2 onwards have all been slightly online so I don't think that's a fair statement fair comparison because Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 to my knowledge at least single player sort of tabletop style RPG games right is yeah. Baldur's Gate 3 not the same I, d I don't know genuinely I assume it is I think it has obviously modernised certain elements of the game but I think at large the mechanics behind it are still the yeah. same so so does it really need that much praise for not having microtransactions in, the, in that case I feel like I'm shitting on the story a little bit here which is not my intention but is it that breaking I think the microtransactions don't just include things like skins and emotes and stupid shit like that it could also be content as well as quests and things like that behind it. I think just the fact that this game has been released as a complete experience without an additional content awaited or down the pipeline is still something to be praised. 
Fair. I don't see that as microtransactions, but you've explained it. That makes sense. So, Boulder Gate Freeze FAQ, where the developer addresses the possibility of the game having in-game purchases, they go ahead to state, no, there are no in-game purchases in our game. We believe in providing a complete and immersive gaming experience without the need for additional purchases. Enjoy the game to its fullest without any additional costs or microtransactions. So once again, they're just sort of reaffirming their commitment to keep this game away from microtransactions. I really hope that that statement does stand the test of time when we don't start hearing very shortly about an incoming season pass within a year once the sales of the game start to slow down. Uh, I don't think there's any risk of that. This game's been in early access for about three years. Well, they get it absolutely right. I don't think these guys are the sort of developers that are going to start doing that, especially if they've doubled down and say they're not going to. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah, I'm that you would hope that given that all of these statements and the evidence so far suggest they are going against the grain let's just hope they keep it up yeah but I think that's uh, all I've really got to talk about in terms of the Baldur's Gate free release. Uh, I haven't played the game myself. More and more interested to check it out after hearing some of the positive reception and uh, also hearing that console players are getting a release of this game slightly later than PC players, which I was a little surprised to hear as well. Nah, that makes perfect sense to me. These games are designed for PC, really. Oh. Again, it just sounds like they're going against the grain of what is typically a normal behaviour of other games. You say it's not surprising, but compare it to any other game that they always release these on console and PC now. There's very few games they get a PC release and then get a later console release, especially in such close proximity to the initial PC release. It's hard for me to have too big an opinion on this because the games of this style that I played were Neverwinter and Nights and Neverwinter Nights 2, and those mm -hmm. I believe were PC only. I, I never went to Nights at Long times edition. ago as well. Yeah, very long time Way ago. before actually having something on PC and console was even a priority yeah. for game studios. Exactly. PC had its own very niche select market at that time, and they were releasing those games for those. That is one thing that has changed with the times, is they will eventually get around to making it on console. Yeah, and that's the thing. Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2 were the same sort of vein of games, so that's why I guess I say it doesn't surprise me, but... Uh, also, mm, mechanically, mm. they don't work as well on PC games. Oh, no, um, console, sorry, games like this. Pillars of Eternity didn't really work that well on console, in my opinion. One thing we'll say about this game, though, is uh, I know a lot of people who are very much looking forward to it, so I'm sure I will see a fair bit of it. Don't think I'll get it myself, but hope it goes well. So our next article of this episode from the CallofDuty.com blog, the Season 5 releases this week for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, and the likes of Commander Graves, who, if you'll remember from the campaign, the five people that actually played the Modern Warfare 2 campaign, you actually kill Graves, or at least you hope to, in a fire explosion in a one-on-one -on -one tank battle. Well, he's actually back for this season, and has returned as a playable operator, so fans of the kind of main antagonist of the game, I suppose, will, uh, will be pleased to see him. But there's also plenty of other Season 5 Battle Pass new features, including the regular 100 plus rewards. There are also two new functional weapons, including an assault rifle and a sniper rifle, as well as a new vehicle in the game, which I actually had a little opportunity to play the other day. Uh, so there is a motorbike that's been added to the game, more specifically a dirt Ooh. bike. And I've got to say, the vehicle physics in this are actually really, really good. It's the best that the driving's been so far. And alongside that, if you get airtime in this thing, which is a very frequent feature they are very zippy probably one of the fastest vehicles in the game so far you can actually perform aerial stunts including front flips back flips and kicking out your legs while you're riding this thing it's crazy are they insane no it's motocross madness just to add an extra bit of flavor into the vehicle driving in the game and i, am I think that pretty much it, had to happen you say. can't have a dirt bike in a game and not be able to backflip it does it sound good <laughs> as well that's with a dirt bike that's key does it sound good it well it sounds like good. a dirt bike yeah. if you like the sound of dirt bikes that's, yeah, that's personally, what I mean. it's not my favorite motorbike noise but uh yeah they do sound Sounds like the dirty. real thing yeah 
sound grotty i like it but i think that the main thing that really sticks out to me here is just the physics of the vehicle it doesn't feel kind of like an extension of another car with two wheels this time you really do bounce around on these things and actually even when you're doing a stunt and you fail it your character even ragdolls off the motorbike which is a really cool thing to see and you don't get to see typically in a regular game of dmz so i'm looking forward to seeing how i can use that to great effect in the middle of a battle somehow Yeah, i like, I like the fact that call of duty and uh, trials have done a crossover it seems that's cool yeah that's what it feels like <laughs> for sure for sure really nice to see uh, and along with that there's also a bunch of new operators there's actually five new operators as part of this battle pass if you decide to buy the black cell edition uh you get some recognizable faces i think one of them is actually from call of duty advanced warfare and seeing as you bought the black cell edition you also get the added bonus of having like a dog that you can carry on your back okay. it provides pretty much no tactical bonus in the battlefield but it does add the ability to do an extra assassination animation <laughs> so these animations are triggered when you run into an enemy hold the melee button when they're facing away from you and typically you'll do some sort of stylish execution move and if you take your doggo on the battlefield with you i'm sure that your dog will promptly gouge out their throat or something like that yeah or you take the dog off your back and strangle someone with a dog oh that would be cool treat your dog like a set of uh, hitman wire cables or something like that yeah Hey, I mean, they're starting to stick dirt bikes with stunts in this thing, so they're clearly kind of going a little bit off script here now. Back to season five, though, I've also heard whispers that Nicki Minaj and Snoop Dogg will be showing up in season five Jesus. as well. So Snoop Dogg making a return to the battlefield from the original Call of Duty Warzone. And we're finally seeing a new face on the battlefield. That's right, Nicki Minaj. You heard me correctly. I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, the dialogue for the different operators is going to be. And... Uh... <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm half tempted to pick up at least Nicki Minaj. Oh, no, if I, if I had that choice, I'd be going for Snoop. <laughs> the only reason I'm not is just because he was in the last game. Yeah, that's the only thing. I, I understand that. <laughs> okay, man, so I think it's time that we moved on to our third and final article of the day. Once again, from our friends at Game Rant, Elden Ring might get more content than fans expect. So this is a pretty speculative, heavy article. The company in charge of From Software and Elden Ring seems to still have big hopes for the game years after its release, with potential plans to substantially expand it in the future, suggesting that the upcoming DLC might be even more significant than initially expected. Explain why it's taken so f***ing long. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that would explain why it's taking so long, and a good thing too. It sounds like uh, they're really putting all hands on deck for this one. From Software's parent company, Kado Kawa, released a quarterly report detailing some tidbits of information about its plans for Elden ring one of the more notable albeit not unexpected reveals that sales are slowing down for elden ring and kado kawa and from software aim to maximize the lifetime value of the game by conducting various measures in the future likely referencing the shadow of the erdtree dlc and what's particularly curious however is that the dlc for elden ring is positioned higher in the report than the upcoming release of a wholly different title from FromSoft, armored core 6 fires of rubicon which james and i are both very much looking forward to playing Indeed. So Armor Core 6 has actually been a long time coming, but as the game is due to launch on August 25th of this year, it's fairly curious to see how it shows up after Elden Ring in Keido Kawa's quarterly report. Though it's not outright stated, the obvious implication being that Keido Kawa prioritizes the importance of Elden Ring's upcoming content over that of Armor Core 6 release date, which is pretty interesting given that they'd be prioritizing a DLC over a mainline title release. It is interesting. 
but I can kind of see the logic. The massive popularity and success mm, of Elden Ring. Exactly that. You kind of feel like that would dwarf the popularity of an Armored Core title that was released years ago. Yeah. You definitely think that they're kind of following the money in that sense, although Armored Core 6 has loads of promise and I think ultimately will do really well. Oh yeah, it's going to be a great fun. Yeah, yeah, but I think they're kind of going with what they know at this point has been a success at least. Yeah. And eventually, you know, if they're talking about things like this having a big roadmap, right? Dark Souls 3 had two DLCs. I think Dark Souls 2 might have had two, but don't hold me that. Dark Souls 3 definitely had two, though. Could we see two DLCs for this one? I'm wondering if we might even see more DLCs for this one than two, because I think that this is like a very established game. It's solid in a lot of ways. This is really cool news. More Elden Ring is great, but I don't want it to impact them releasing the equivalent of Elden Ring 2 or new IPs or whatever the f***. I just hope that it doesn't delay that new spellcasting game that we were talking about being rumoured in development of FromSoft already. I think that taking too much focus away from that would be a mistake, because I think that one of the things that FromSoft has done really successfully over the years of its popularity has been to actually release new IPs and do that really well. I think that's us for the news this week, man. I think it's time that we moved on to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. We left off last week as the hero of our story, Booker DeWitt, and Elizabeth, the girl we must retrieve, are standing in the rising elevator on their way back up to Finkton. They are headed to the gun shop to see if their plan of entering an alternate reality through a portal called a tear has been successful in terms of allowing them to deliver gun-making tools so that they can arm an uprising against the founders of Columbia. As we covered last week, Booker is now helping the Vox Populi, a group of rebels led by a woman called Daisy Fitzroy, so that they will give him an airship to allow him to escape from the flying city of Columbia with Elizabeth. As the elevator reaches its destination, Booker and Elizabeth are once again met with the sounds of gunfire, shouting, and battle as the Vox Populi fight for power against the Comstock-led founders. Booker, with the help of Elizabeth's magical portal, wish fulfillment abilities, is able to eliminate any founders in their path on their way back to Finkton. As he fights his way through the streets and rooftops, Booker also encounters a new ability in the form of a tonic. This time it's CHARGE! Drinking this tonic allows Booker to charge directly into enemies from long distances, delivering a devastating tornado-powered punch with his skyhook. The power is great for covering ground, knocking enemies back and stunning them, and can also be charged for better effect. After fighting past a handful of yet more founder soldiers using the Skyrails to outmaneuver and viciously attack their pursuers, Booker and Elizabeth arrive at the gates to Finkton. After being freed from her cage a couple of episodes ago, Elizabeth is beginning to spread her wings, and she starts to ponder her own abilities. Did she open up a portal to a new reality where the tools are back at Chenlin's gun shop, or did she create a new reality entirely? All of this metaphysical, existential nonsense is clearly going over Booker's head at this point, as he seems more preoccupied with clearing out the rest of the founders before they arrive at the gun shop. On their arrival into the foyer of the gun shop, Booker and Elizabeth discover the owner, Chen Lin, lying dead alongside his wife. Last week we covered Chen Ling having been beaten to death after his arrest by Fink and the Founders under suspicion of supplying guns to the Vox Populi. This week they appear to have stumbled across yet another reality where Chen Lin has been murdered again. Either Chen Lin has done some seriously dodgy deeds in a past life, or this is a serious case of cosmic parallel universe bad luck. After discovering the deceased couple, it's time for Booker and Elizabeth to head back to Daisy Fitzroy and hope their deal to arm the Vox Populi is still good after travelling through various dimensional portals. 
Booker and Elizabeth head back to Fink's factory where Daisy is located. In the meantime, they also manage to board and take out an attacking airship that is pelting the rebels below with its cannons, and in a skillful display, Booker manages to escape the doomed airship by hooking onto a sky rail with his trusty skyhook and returning to the fight on the ground. By now, the Vox have managed to get the gates to the factory open, and Booker and Elizabeth can finally proceed. They fight their way through more Founder soldiers before arriving at an elevator that leads deeper into Fink's factory, currently under attack by the Vox Populi. On their way up, the phone in the elevator rings, and it's a very suspicious Daisy Fitzroy. If you remember from last week, in this parallel universe, Booker was revered as a martyr of the Colombian Revolution, and Daisy herself claims to have seen Booker die. She does not believe that the Booker she is speaking to is the real one, and she's right, considering her Booker had already died in this reality. Daisy believes Booker is either a ghost or an imposter, and tells him that My Booker DeWitt was a hero to the cause, a story to tell your children. You... You just complicate the narrative. The power of leading the revolution has clearly gone to Daisy's head, and she sees Booker at this point as an unnecessary complication to her story leading the Vox against Comstock. At this point, she sets her Vox soldiers on Booker and Elizabeth, making for yet more fun fights as we work our way towards Daisy and the airship we were promised. As we fight our way through this section, Booker comes across another tonic. This time it's Undertow. After gulping down the tonic, Booker is able to send forth a torrent of water that washes away enemies, and if the tonic is charged before use, a watery tentacle will sling out from Booker's hand to grab enemies, pulling them towards him. And this is a really powerful ability for drawing hard-to-reach enemies near, as well as washing away close attackers located in precarious places. Yeah, and I've got to say that both this and charge, uh, I only used the one time for the achievement, but otherwise I didn't find much use for these ones. Oh, that's interesting. I actually got loads of use out of the Undertow ability. Whenever there was a precarious edge, I was sending multiple people over it at once. It was uh, very fun for doing that. I didn't think to use it for that. We're in a flying city. Yeah, Just send them I, over I really the edge didn't and think they'll to do splat that. somewhere in the ground below. Oh, I'll remember <laughs> that from my next playthrough. Also, at certain parts in the game where you're being attacked by gondolas with large groups of enemies all on the gondola at once, in one sweep you can knock every single enemy off the gondola. Yeah, again, never thought of that. Booker defeats yet more attacking enemies and finally works his way to the main elevator leading to Fink's office. As we enter the room, we see Fink through a pane of bulletproof glass, facing away from us and pleading for his life, with a figure standing in the shadows. Fink is suddenly executed via a gunshot to the head, and out of the shadows walks Daisy Fitzroy. Daisy then orders the remaining Vox Populi in the area to kill Booker and Elizabeth, referring to them both as imposters. The pair is then attacked by hordes of Vox arriving via airship, also accompanied by a handyman. The large human robotic melded monstrosities that were made to work and protect Columbia now turn to the cause of the rebels. Remember the bold f***ers we were talking about last week? Hitman looking yeah. guys. Agent 47. <laughs> After defeating more hordes of enemies, we see Daisy once again through a glass window, and this time she has accosted a child working for Fink. All semblance of morality seems to have left Daisy now, and the power of the so far successful rebellion has completely gone to her head. To help rescue the child, Booker lifts Elizabeth into a vent leading to the room, and moves back to the glass to distract Daisy. Daisy tells Booker that the founders are like weeds, cut them down, and more grow back, so you have to pull them up from the root instead. The root in this situation clearly meaning the unfortunate child who is struggling against Daisy's restraint. As Daisy lowers the gun to the child's head, Elizabeth suddenly emerges and plunges a pair of sharp scissors into Daisy's back, killing her and freeing the child. Elizabeth is clearly traumatised after committing this murder, despite the evil intent her victim had just moments before. 
And now, covered in blood, Elizabeth turns and runs away from Booker towards the First Lady airship. And I quite like this because it's sort of that line we said uh, in the train station all that time ago, sort of coming back round. I thought that was quite good storytelling. Yeah, there is a, a lot of good storytelling yeah. in that. And, and exactly for those reasons, they lay those breadcrumbs exactly. early on to show some character development along the ways. Done really yeah, well. I really here. like that. Booker boards the airship and knocks on a locked door, which Elizabeth is hiding behind. But she doesn't answer, so he moves to the controls to begin setting a new course. As the airship departs, Elizabeth appears from the room, now with a new homemade haircut, possibly using the murder scissors she used to kill Daisy. <laughs> the murder scissors. Booker tries to reassure Elizabeth that someday it will be possible to reconcile and live alongside the bad things she's done in life. At least it seems to work for him, following Booker's shady past. There's hardly any time to console Elizabeth though, as a familiar tune begins to play from a statue. Summoning the large flying beast that was made to protect Elizabeth and prevent her from escaping. The beast, which is known as Songbird, begins attacking the airship. Songbird shatters the front viewing port and manages to crash the ship, sending Booker and Elizabeth tumbling inside and causing them to eventually be knocked unconscious. Booker and Elizabeth recover inside the control room of the crashed airship to see the Latesses, our mysterious guides throughout the game, attempting to play a tune on the nearby piano and bickering over the correct sequence of keys to press. Elizabeth quickly recognises the tune they are attempting to play as the same tune that is capable of summoning Songbird. She struggles to break free and to stop them from playing the music. However, just as Elizabeth reaches the Lutesses, they play the final note. Elizabeth and Booker brace themselves for the arrival of Songbird. However, no screeching and metal wrenching can be heard in the distance, and the Lutesses explain that in order to summon Songbird, the tune also needs to be played on the correct instrument. The notes were correct. The instrument was not. One needs both to get his attention. But if you know how to sing to him... He will take you where you need to go. One of the Lutesses hands Booker a leaflet of Songbird defence mechanism tunes, and Booker asks if there are any other tunes that Comstock uses to control Songbird. The Lutesses respond that perhaps Booker should ask Comstock, the man in charge of Columbia, himself. As Booker looks up from the pamphlet and asks where he can find Comstock, both of the Lutesses have already vanished. Of course. Elizabeth points to Comstock House in the distant clouds and explains that that's where we need to start if we want to find Comstock. As we move through the next area, Elizabeth explains she used to look forward to the summoning tune for Songbird, as when she was younger she viewed it as a friend. It would bring her books and feed her and was essentially the only company she had. As she grew older and her powers began to show, she also started to hate Songbird, realising that he was more of a warden than a friend. We also see a sign with bloody scalps nailed to it belonging to people who Daisy considers as against her cause. Booker and Elizabeth both agree that Daisy is perhaps no better than Comstock, the man she was fighting against for freedom. As they board another gondola towards Comstock House, Elizabeth suddenly remembers who the Latesses are. As we explained in episode 49, the Latesses, or at least Rosalind Latesse, is actually responsible for the technology behind keeping Columbia airborne. In her reading, Elizabeth learned that both the Latesses suddenly and mysteriously disappeared several years back. It starts to become clear to both our heroes that there is more to the strange bickering couple than it first appears. Booker and Elizabeth finally arrive at the island port leading to Comstock House. This new area is where the upper classes of Columbia reside and is lavishly decorated, a stark contrast to the industrial and slum-like areas we've recently been playing through. Booker and Elizabeth battle through the hordes of Vox soldiers attempting to attack the island and claim it for themselves. 
They eventually reach a room with a combination lock, and after discovering the combination kept on a notepad nearby, the summoning tune is played out in full by a hidden golden Comstock statue standing in the room. Almost as soon as the last note is played, haunting sounds of Comstock's shrieking abomination can be heard in the distance, along with the sounds of banging and crumbling buildings. Songbird suddenly appears by a window in the room Booker and Elizabeth are hiding in, and shatters the window before disappearing again. Before Elizabeth inputs the code into the locked exit, she asks Booker to make a promise. Elizabeth, you promise me. I will stop him. That is an oath you cannot keep, but promise me that if it comes to it, you will not let him take me back. It won't come to that. Booker and Elizabeth are pursued by more Vox in the next area. The rebels are really doing a number on the nearby buildings dedicated to Comstock, firing the cannons on board their own brand of quantum-powered flying gondolas. This is a very tough area in the game where you're pursued by heavily armoured enemies, including yet another handyman. Using an array of Vox-made weapons, our usual tonic-fueled abilities, also alongside Elizabeth's summoning powers to bring in an array of decoys, weapons and automatons to assist us, Booker and Elizabeth successfully escape into the next area. But before they do so, we find our final tonic power, Return to Sender. This ability allows Booker to cast an additional magnetic shield that stays in front of him for a short while, catching any bullets or incoming projectiles in a protective field. The additional charged ability allows Booker to catch all of the projectiles and send them back in a powerful shot, or place them on the ground like a mine. And this reflect was really cool. I think it's definitely the coolest looking ability in the game. I really like any effect where you can kind of catch bullets out the air, turn them into a mass and then fling them back. Yeah, I still think the crows are cooler, but I, I can't argue with your point. When I saw some very, very early test kind of demo footage of Bioshock before they'd even really established what the story was going to be, I do remember seeing that. On that first reveal, after getting my mind blown by seeing that they were in the sky, seeing some of the new abilities that they'd worked into the game as well, this was the one that I was most looking forward to using when I initially picked up the game. Interesting that it also got delivered as the last ability in the game. Yeah, and for that reason I've hardly used it, but it was cool. After defeating more Rebel Vox, Booker and Elizabeth arrive at Zachary Hale Comstock's Victory Square, where they attempt to get through the gate leading to Comstock House. Their journey is once again diverted as the gate is of course locked. This is no ordinary lock however, and a robotic voice greets Elizabeth, mistakenly recognising her as Lady Comstock, Elizabeth's mother, and even making a comment that it is nice of Lady Comstock to make the journey considering her painful death 19 years ago. This isn't a normal passcode or hairpin lock however and based on the handprint recognition device on the front of the gate, and the fact it doesn't unlock when Elizabeth tries to open it, we're going to need a hand with this one. <sighs> the only way to get through this gate is to pay Elizabeth's dear old mother a visit somewhere in the memorial gardens, and somehow retrieve her hand in order to unlock the gate leading to Comstock House. As we venture into the memorial gardens where we attempt to break into the glass coffin of Lady Comstock, Booker is trapped in the room with the corpse and Elizabeth is locked outside. Comstock's voice sounds over what look like old style speakers and they appear to begin sucking energy from Elizabeth, causing her immense pain and agony, begging for it to stop. The speakers then redirect Elizabeth's energy to the corpse of Lady Comstock, causing the glass coffin to shatter and a wretched ghostly form of Lady Comstock to emerge. In a bright flash, the coffin is now empty and Lady Comstock has disappeared. 
Elizabeth takes a moment to recover before telling Booker that it's not a ghost we saw. Comstock was somehow able to use her powers to bring Lady Comstock back in this horrifying form in an attempt to stop us from reaching him. Undeterred by this fact, Elizabeth and Booker pursue Lady Comstock in the hopes of reaching Comstock and uncovering more of his past. A battle in the memorial gardens takes place, where Booker is attacked by a spectral form of Lady Comstock, along with a small army of ghostly enemies raised from the dead. After defeating our ghostly enemies, for now, we begin to question, what is Lady Comstock? Is she alive or dead? We begin to get a taste of the answers we seek, as we notice the Latesses a short way off, shoveling dirt into two graves marked with their own names. Yeah, and when I was exploring the area beforehand, before getting this mission, I saw the graves and I was like, are they zombies? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're still there. It says Lutes and Lutes, but it's just the graves are there. They're not yeah. there doing anything. Yeah. So I was just like, what? <laughs> In this next section, Elizabeth and Booker have to work their way through several areas, including Lutes's labs, the Bank of the Prophet, and Harmony Lane. Following the glowing footsteps of Lady Comstock in order to uncover what unfinished business she wants to share with us, we need to discover three truths that Comstock has successfully been able to hide in this reality, but with the help of Elizabeth's dimension-hopping abilities, we are now able to uncover these secrets by travelling to universes where he hasn't been able to hide away these lies and deceptions. We arrive at the Lutessa's laboratory and see Lady Comstock and Rosalind Lutess arguing through a portal tear. We learn that Lady Comstock thinks that Elizabeth isn't her child, and that Lutess is actually the mother. Lutess tries to reassure Lady Comstock that Comstock is in fact sterile. We later learn that his sterility is due to his ongoing experimentation with tears, seeking to fulfil his destiny as a self-appointed prophet. In Harmony Lane, we arrive at a photography shop, and find another tear, where we discover that the Lutesses somehow managed to return from the dead, giving their funeral photographer a nasty surprise. We also learn via a voxophone that the revived Lutesses are now accusing Jeremiah Fink of their murder. Fink was a powerful member of Comstock's founder faction, and the man who we saw Daisy Fitzroy kill earlier as recompense for his despicable treatment of workers and minorities. Elizabeth also begins to understand that the ghostly version of Lady Comstock we are seeing is in fact a combination of her deceased body, along with all of Elizabeth's resentment and anger and feelings towards her previously, creating the monstrosity who we have been fighting with back in the memorial gardens. Booker and Elizabeth then follow more footsteps and turn their attention to the Bank of the Prophet to find the third and final tear. In this tear, we hear Jeremiah Fink speaking to a man, asking a man why he has been asked by Comstock to murder the Latesses. The answer is given that it is for the same reason as why Lady Comstock was murdered, to maintain a secret kept around the Comstock's child, now known as Elizabeth. But we've already discovered, Comstock isn't Elizabeth's father at all due to him being sterile, so what else is there to find out? It also turns out that Comstock had framed Daisy Fitzroy for the murder of Lady Comstock all along, and had ultimately, indirectly, made her the leader and face of the rebellion against him. Another cool little factoid that we discover as we move through this section is that a man called Albert Fink, Jeremiah Fink's brother in fact, has been using the tears he has discovered around Columbia to see into other dimensions, sometimes into the future, to see glimpses of songs made ahead in time, which he then copied and composed in order to find success in the music industry in Columbia. This actually explains a lot of the music we've heard throughout the game, being 1900s time-appropriate renditions of songs by the likes of Cyndi Lauper, R.E.M. and the Beach Boys. Booker and Elizabeth now head back to Comstock's Victory Square towards the gate to Comstock's house for one final confrontation with Lady Comstock's wretched spectral form. 
After battling waves of her ghostly minions, we are finally able to calm Lady Comstock, and Elizabeth attempts to communicate with her. Elizabeth insists that she and her adoptive mother must forgive each other for the sake of uncovering the truth about Comstock, and after explaining to the ghost that she was murdered by Zachary Hurl Comstock himself, Lady Comstock bursts through the gates and opens the way for Booker and Elizabeth to proceed to Comstock House. Booker and Elizabeth board the lift to Comstock House, but as the lever is pulled to begin the journey, Songbird suddenly appears, lifting Booker up and throwing him through a window into a nearby building. Booker begins to recover from his unexpected flight as Songbird appears, tearing a hole through the ceiling and landing down into the large decorated room. As Songbird lifts his clawed hand to put an end to Booker's story, Elizabeth jumps between them and begs Songbird not to kill him, allowing herself to be recaptured by Songbird and whisked away from Booker, who is now left alone in the destroyed room. Booker is not one to be defeated so easily, and he pursues Songbird using a network of cargo hooks. As he finally lands on a bridge in the middle of a storm, Booker runs across and taunts Songbird, telling him to come after him instead. Before long, our vision whites out, and it appears that as we have crossed the bridge to Comstock House, Booker has inadvertently travelled through a tear, and is now in a dimension across and away from Elizabeth, but still in the same place, and still able to see back and hear her protests of capture through various tears as we fight our way through this new alternate version of reality. In the universe that Booker has found himself in, it appears quite some time has passed since Elizabeth was captured, and she herself has lost hope of Booker returning to save her, becoming brainwashed, and now seeing herself as the new prophet of Columbia. Although Elizabeth's capture happened only moments ago to us, Booker has travelled roughly six months into the future in this reality, and things now appear very different. In order to once again rescue Elizabeth, we fight our way through an asylum sort of hospitally area, guarded by a new type of enemy called a Boy of Silence, a human blue-suited figure with a large brass helmet covering their heads, resembling a brass sphere with two trumpets sticking out where the ears would be on a normal human head. These enemies act in a similar fashion to the security cameras in Bioshocks 1 and 2, and Booker needs to decide to either sneak or fight past these enemies. In the case that Booker decides to fight his way past, the Boy of Silence will call enemies in the area to turn aggressive and fight with Booker, um, worth noting that these enemies are sort of just masked patients that are just milling about. Yeah. Booker works his way through the asylum and finally reaches the warden's office, where he pulls a lever to open a secure door leading to where Elizabeth is being held. We get an unexpected jump scare in this scene as the moment Booker turns around after pulling the lever, he is met by another Son of Silence standing directly behind him, now shouting to call enemies to begin their attack. As we continue to fight our way towards Elizabeth, we learn that she is due to undergo some sort of procedure that Comstock has planned likely to make her more willing to succumb to his will and control her powers for his nefarious plans. We later discover that it's actually used to prevent her from using her abilities outside of whenever they plan for her to use her abilities, uh, and doing so will cause her excruciating pain. They kind of compare it to Pavlov's dog making it drool. I think that they say in this one that they'll make her cry instead. Booker also hears via a tear that some of the scientists responsible for Elizabeth's planned procedure have actually become pretty concerned for their own safety and are intending to modify the procedure to instead murder Elizabeth, making it appear to Comstock as an accident during the surgery. At some point during the asylum, we encounter the Lutesses once again, before hearing Elizabeth calling to us in the distance. As we run towards the voice, we are able to see the silhouette of Elizabeth from behind a lit curtain. At this point, it appears Booker has either travelled into the future, or one of many futures, and is seeing a glimpse of a potential reality that may come to be, came to be, is. As you can tell, things are getting very odd at this point. 
and it does help to keep in mind that, according to the Lutessas at least, amongst their almost indecipherable syntax, that different realities exist alongside each other. And just as they don't need to exist along the same place in space, they also can exist at the same time across different times in a countless number of realities and existences, if that makes sense. If you're still lost, just play the game, and then watch a 30 minute YouTube video explaining all the time travel, existential coexisting universe bullshit like we did. Booker pulls himself up behind the curtain to finally reach Elizabeth, but it appears that she has aged significantly, her wrinkled face and greyed hair being the obvious signs that we are seeing into the future, much further than six months into the future. Elizabeth is looking onwards, pointing at the scene in front of us, New York in a blaze sometime in 1984, and being attacked by the forces of Columbia. Future Elizabeth explains that she brought Booker back into this future for both his sake and the sake of our own Elizabeth, and she hands us a card, telling him that Elizabeth will know what to do when the time comes. The paper contains advice, and when asked what the advice is for, Future Elizabeth tells us that it will show our Elizabeth how to avoid the future we are seeing now, and how not to become the future Elizabeth we see before us. Elizabeth brings her hands together and opens another tear, now sending us back to 1912, where we can hear Elizabeth calling for help, now strapped to a table, with the procedure we discussed earlier clearly about to take place. Yeah, and that's uh, future Elizabeth bringing her hands together and our Elizabeth calling for help, just in case there was any doubt there. Because it's confusing. Confusing as all hell. After Booker shuts down two more machines that are restraining our Elizabeth... <laughs> She is able to break free and opens a giant tear which takes up most of the large operating room she is in. Through the portal appears to be a scene from the ground down below, where a giant tornado is sweeping across the land and destroying everything in sight, making its way from the distance towards the operation area. The scientists are swept up in the wind and Elizabeth then closes the portal before harming herself or Booker in the chaos that just ensued. Booker makes his way down and frees Elizabeth from her restraints. Booker hands Elizabeth the piece of paper that future Elizabeth gave us, and Elizabeth now begins to understand that Booker's visions of a 1980s New York in flames were indeed visions of a future that will happen if Comstock is not stopped. Elizabeth also notices the piece of paper includes instruction on how to stop Songbird, although there is one symbol in particular she doesn't understand. With those thoughts aside, time to head to Comstock's airship, known as the Hand of the Prophet, and finally end this madness. Boarding a gondola set for Comstock's airship, Booker and Elizabeth defend from an assault by various founder soldiers trying to prevent them from reaching Comstock. The pair resist the attack and eventually arrive at their destination. They now need to fight their way past the remaining founder's forces up the decks of the airship, even at one point being attacked by the Vox Populi. Clearly, we're not the only ones gunning for Comstock at this point, and Booker and Elizabeth manage to fight their way inside, only to face yet more troops, this time backed up by another handyman heavy hitter. After arriving inside the final quarters, Elizabeth confirms our suspicions that Comstock has been using devices to drain Elizabeth of her powers, preventing her from opening up tears to entirely new realities where she wanted to go while she was being kept in the tower, which she sort of intimates when she was a kid she could do quite freely. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. Before long, the doors open and we finally get to confront Comstock. Come here, child. Oh, come on, I don't bite. My, oh my, how you have grown. Elizabeth asks Booker to lower his weapon. This matter is between just the two of them. In the confrontation, Comstock tells Booker that he was mistaken in sending armies to stop him, when all he needed to do was tell Elizabeth the truth of how she lost the tip of her finger as a child. Booker loses control, perhaps subconsciously trying to hide something, and begins to attack Comstock. She's your daughter, you son of a bitch! And you abandoned her! Was it worth it? Huh? 
Did you get what you wanted? Tell me! Tell me! It is finished. Nothing is finished! You lock her up for her whole life! You cut off her finger and you put it on me! Stop it! You killed him. Elizabeth becomes suspicious, asking Booker what Comstock meant by telling her the truth about her finger. Booker insists that he has no idea what Comstock is talking about, and tells Elizabeth that he will prove this by helping her destroy the tower containing the siphon that Comstock was using to drain her powers. Booker and Elizabeth head to the controls to begin their journey to the tower, but before they do they are attacked once again by the Vox, still attempting to seize control of the now deceased Comstock's airship. At this point, Elizabeth pulls out the piece of paper given to her by her future self, and understands the symbol she couldn't decipher before. The image of a cage refers to the musical notes C-A-G-E, the notes needed to sing to Songbird and control him. It's time to turn foe into friend, and we can now ask Elizabeth to play an instrument she retrieves from one of Comstock's statues in order to fight off our attackers. After fighting off several attacking airships with the help of Songbird's immense strength and agility, we finally turn his attention to completely destroying the damaged golden angelic statue where we rescued Elizabeth from at the start of the game. The statue also houses the siphon device that was being used to control and extract Elizabeth's powers. As the whole tower falls and the siphon is finally destroyed, Elizabeth's hair suddenly turns glowing white temporarily, and it appears she now has access to her powers in full. The electromagnetic blast also renders our songbird whistler useless, and now Songbird has turned on us, preparing to attack. Just as Booker is about to be mauled by Songbird, Elizabeth opens up another portal, transporting them both into what looks like a room staring out underwater into the depths of the ocean. Fans familiar with the previous games will notice almost immediately that this room also feels very familiar indeed. We now appear to be deep below sea level in the underwater city of Rapture, the primary locale of the first two games. City at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Ridiculous. On the other side of the window we can see Songbird, underwater and beginning to be crushed by the immense pressure of the ocean depths. Elizabeth seems almost sad saying her goodbyes to Songbird, remembering the times as a child when she viewed the beast as a friend and provider, instead of the warden it became. The two make their way through several rooms and arrive at a bathosphere pod, almost exactly the same one as the one we descended into Rapture as Johnny Topside back in Bioshock 1. This time we ascend through the depths of the ocean instead. As the bathosphere begins to surface, Booker and Elizabeth step out to see a sea of endless realities lined with lighthouses. What appears to be a night sky lit by stars is actually a sea of lighthouse bulbs lighting up the endless space. Each of the lighthouses represents a door to another reality, endless realities in fact, and the only thing left to do is deciding which door to pick. After stepping through another lighthouse door out to another ocean full of lighthouses, 
Our endless coexisting realities are further illustrated as we see another version of Booker and Elizabeth experiencing the same moment that we are, walking across another pier just across from our Booker and Elizabeth. Each journey always starts with a lighthouse and ends in the same place, back where it started. As well as all realities existing at once, time is also cyclical, meaning Booker is unable to fight his destiny or stop it from happening. He's already done it, and it's already happened. No force is telling us where to go. In reality, we've already been. As we pass through another door, we enter a peaceful scene where churchgoers are in prayer. Booker remembers this location, and it was actually somewhere he visited around 20 years ago after the events of Wounded Knee. He had attempted to cleanse his guilty soul by becoming baptised, and as the preacher offers to take his hand to baptise Booker, he initially resists, before being reminded by Elizabeth that he's already taken the hand of the preacher all those years ago. At this point, there is no other choice but to accept our baptism. As the ceremony begins, Booker suddenly resists and pushes the men away. It's clear that in Booker's original reality, he ultimately didn't go through with the baptism, feeling that it still wouldn't be able to wash his soul clean of the events in the past. As we enter another door, we are back in Booker's private detective office, in another memory. This time, we see Robert Lutess standing inside the door telling Booker to bring them the girl and wipe away the debt. That phrase we've been hearing throughout the game. Booker enters the back room of his office and discovers there is a baby inside. A baby that bears a very strong resemblance to Elizabeth, exactly the same eyes. Booker is understandably confused. He doesn't remember a baby, much less wanting to hand one over to a stranger like Robert Lutess. Elizabeth insists that Booker is unable to leave the room until he hands over the baby. And given what we've discovered about time being cyclical, this indeed is part of Booker's destiny, to surrender the child. Booker gives in to his destiny and hands the child to Lutess, and he walks away, closing the door. As we open the door leading back into the office, Booker is suddenly plunged into another familiar scene. We're back on board the small rowboat being paddled towards the lighthouse that took us to Columbia at the start of the game. We eventually arrive and leave the boat with Elizabeth. She tells us that things aren't over just because Comstock is dead, he's actually still alive in countless millions of other universes. Things will only truly be over when he never existed in the first place. We arrive at the door of the lighthouse, marked with the same note we saw telling us to bring the girl and wipe away the debt. As Booker enters the room, we are met with an entirely unexpected scene. Booker is standing in an alleyway, staring at what appears to be Robert Lattes and a slightly younger Comstock trying to escape with the baby Elizabeth through a portal tear back to Columbia. Booker obviously had second thoughts about surrendering his baby to wipe away the debts, and attempts to stop them from stealing baby Elizabeth. In the struggle, Comstock is able to escape with Elizabeth. No! No, no, no! Shut down the machine! No! Shut it down! Shut down the machine! No! Do it! Give me back my daughter! No! But not before the closing of the tear causes it to slice off the tip of baby Elizabeth's finger, thus explaining how she came to have the missing fingertip as an adult. After losing his daughter to Comstock, it is revealed Booker spent the next 20 years drowning his sorrows in a room, until a man came to him and offered him a chance of redemption. The man in question was actually Robert Lutess, accompanied by Rosalind. After being murdered by Comstock, and using their understanding of multiverse realities, they were able to return from death and find Booker, giving him a chance to find Elizabeth once again. Their experiment was successful, and they were able to pull Booker from his reality into another, where he could rescue Elizabeth. The transfer had an extreme effect on Booker, 
and caused his mind to rapidly adapt to this new reality, forming memories from his past life where none existed previously, bringing back the quote shown to us from the beginning of the game. The mind of the subject will desperately struggle to create memories where none exist. So Booker has all these kind of misconceptions about the fact that he was a private investigator that was under a load of bank debt and therefore needed to rescue this girl for these kind of debt collectors. Turns out that this is kind of pretty much entirely inspired by his own uh, poor decision making at the beginning of the game. Yeah, and then they say something along the lines of that uh, they use he uses fragments of his true memories to form new ones. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's all it. based yeah. in reality, which is why it's also head f***y. After this mind-warping realisation, Booker begins to accept that he sold his daughter Elizabeth to Comstock in order to wipe away the debts. He blames Comstock for this, and suggests that if he goes back in time using one of the lighthouse doors, he can prevent all of this from happening by killing Comstock as a baby. As Booker reaches the door, preparing himself to murder an infant, the door swings open to another unexpected scene. He is once again facing the preacher, about to be baptised as he was in the past after being troubled by his sins. As he prepares to be baptised, several other Elizabeths appear around us, all slightly different than the versions that we're used to seeing of herself. The Elizabeths reveal to us that in our Booker's reality, he indeed didn't take the baptism. However, in millions of other realities, he did receive the baptism and his soul was cleansed. He became a man of God and went on to devote the rest of his life to becoming a man of the cloth. It is at this point that our most disturbing reality is revealed. We are Booker DeWitt. However, we are also Comstock, or at least the man who becomes Comstock. In order to prevent the future where Comstock founded Columbia, Booker must die before he is baptised. No baby is smothered in its crib today, thankfully, but Booker is pushed underwater by the Elizabeths. After sadly coming to the conclusion that this is the only way to prevent all of this from happening in the first place. He's Zachary Comstock. He's Booker DeWitt. No. I'm both. As the bubbles in the water fade to nothing and a scene reminiscent to the bit of the start of the game when we first arrive in Columbia, and the camera pans away, we begin to see the various forms of Elizabeth fizzling out of reality, no longer having existed due to Comstock never having been born from Booker, until only the lone Elizabeth remains standing and the screen fades to black. So there's just a couple other things that I wanted to sort of wrap up that we never really got around to explaining during the course of the game. Uh, so we did mention that occasionally throughout the experience, Booker has sort of suspicious nosebleeds, which I sort of hinted at in the first part of our Completionist Corner playthrough. And these moments tend to occur, actually, when Booker's current reality, he starts to question it and where he's come from. The particularly moments where he's forced to confront the fact that he may not actually be from this reality. And it's a sign of his mind starting to adapt and try and reconcile the fact that he isn't actually a part of that reality. 
And we also see very similar signs happening to some guards that we happen to murder early on in the game. But Elizabeth then takes us through a portal where we bump into the same guards, having been pulled through into that reality. And they're now sort of walking around like zombie-like characters yeah. with uh, blood dripping from their faces. And that's sort of explained away as they're unable to reconcile the fact that they're dead in one reality and have all the memories of dying in that previous reality. And now they've been brought into this one. Their brains are unable to reconcile the fact that they're dead. Also, yeah. in a very similar way to Lady Comstock after being revived needed to reconcile the fact that she was dead as well in another yeah. reality. Uh, a couple of the other things in the game uh, people might be wondering just why Zachary Hale Comstock Father Comstock uh, doesn't resemble Booker at all in the game. <laughs> Which he doesn't at all he looks more like Santa. Yeah he does exactly whereas Booker is clearly sort of a man in his sort of 40s-ish sort of thing. Uh, I'd say 40s because it's been 20 years, right? So uh, the reason for that being that Comstock's prolonged exposure to the various tears and the technology that he was using in order to keep his title as prophet and future seer, all of that experimentation actually caused him not only to become sterile, but also to rapidly age as well. Something that Rosalind Latesse observes in a voxophone that you can find in the game uh, is that uh, that is one of the other features of all of his experimentation. And just the final point, that we never really got around to covering is the fact the Lutesses are actually one and the same person uh, due to Rosalind Lutesses' experimentation with quantum teleportation as well as the portal tears. She actually discovered a version of herself that decided to follow her through the portal back and hence she was seeing another version of herself whereas in that reality she'd been born as a man. So rather than them being a couple that looks very similar or even a pair of twins, they are in fact one and the same person except that one of them decided to stick around in the other reality instead of returning to their own. Which is very confusing because Elizabeth refers to them as the twins. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think so that that's a little bit of a red herring there to kind yeah. of throw you off a little bit more. Yeah. And whilst we're on the subject of the Lutesses, I've got to say, brilliant characters, these guys. Really good. Their constant sort of. bickering is really endearing, actually, yeah. and quite funny. They provide a lot of the source of humour in the game as well. I was going to say, they, were, they are the comic relief in this game um, a lot of the time. But they're also, when they need to say important stuff, it's done in a charming, quirky way. But mm. is actually, it's as clear as it can be, given how complicated this game ends up. The way that they present the ideas in the game, I find, is really well. It gives you just enough information to start pondering what they're talking about, while also just being so kind of obscure in terms of their definitions and how they go about conversating with each other. Yeah, and talking in riddles is always a winner with me, because I just find that sh funny. If nothing yeah, else. it's intriguing as hell. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, so, I mean, I guess given that we're in the game, man, let's get some thoughts in. What did you think? I know that this is a game that you hold in very high regard. What did it live up to expectations this playthrough as well yeah so this is honestly probably my third or fourth or maybe even more times playthrough of this game i played it a bunch as i have a lot of the other previous titles but it held up in every regard once again this was the first time that i've actually been able to play it on computer so i was actually able to see quite a few uh improvements in the graphics i actually forgot to mention as well this is the first time that i've played the remastered edition as well so it's a significant improvement from the last time i played the game in terms of graphics although i will say that originally on the xbox Free. 60 the graphics were really immense for the time as well maybe even some of the best graphics out there from that generation before the likes of something like the last of us showed up i think that there's plenty of systems that we kind of touched on early on in the first part of this coverage where i mentioned that they have taken a lot of steps back in the efforts to modernize the gameplay mechanics I do miss a lot of the things like being able to have multiple weapons at once uh, and uh, and being able to upgrade the weapons and that having a visible impact on the weapons that you're using as well as in some cases introducing new gameplay elements. 
I think that in a lot of ways, this falls short of some of the high bars that the original Bioshock set, but make no mistake, those were extremely high bars. One way that this game really jumps forward for me in terms of gameplay aspects is the storytelling and the way that that's delivered through the characters in the game. As you touched on there, the Lotesses are really recognisable and really well-written characters, but I also really like the developing relationship between Booker and Elizabeth as well, and yeah. I'd kind of like put that somewhere akin to the developing relationship between Joel and Ellie in the Last of Us series as well, to draw another kind of parallel there. It's something that you can actually tell over time makes a lot of difference between the way that they interact and there's kind of ups and downs to their relationship throughout the course of the campaign as well. Yeah, I, I can't speak to The Last of Us, but I know enough about the game to say that's a fair point. So no, yeah, I, I can't argue with too much what you said there. I mean, uh, for me, this game mechanically was the best of the three. The shooting in this game felt the best. I do actually think the range of guns was probably the best in this too, but I agree with everything you said there about not liking not being able to carry all the weapons at once and missing out on those visible upgrades that also gave you an extra mode in a lot of cases. The upgrades yeah. in this game were just extra damage, less recoil, quicker reload. All great, but given one and two, they kind of dropped the ball a bit there. I think story-wise, it's very well told indeed, particularly given how complicated it is. On a personal level, much like with Bioshock 1 when I played that, because in the last year I've played all three for the first time, right? Yes. <laughs> what a treat for you. <laughs> I know, it's been quite cool for me, but as is the case with Bioshock 1 with this one, I kind of knew the twist before I played, which right. kind of, which it didn't ruin it, but it would have been so much cooler to me if I didn't know that Booker was Comstock before I started. Much more impactful. In the same way that if I didn't know about Would You Kindly before I'd played the first one, that would have been like mind-blowing. But this is, it's been an excellent trilogy to play through. And uh, I don't really have too many more negative things to say about Infinite. All I would say is the locations kind of all look the same. There's not too much variety. Whereas in Rapture, you've got like, I know it's all underwater city and stuff, but there were loads of different variations of it. Some more flooded, some less flooded, some clean, some dirty. In this, it was all just floaty towns for the most Very part. Very themed areas, yeah, in Bioshock 1. And even the internal bits, like the factory and... The Hall of Heroes, for example, they weren't that different. Well, I mean, I think that some of those were some of the more varied areas in the game, but I will agree that a lot of the streets in the game, once you fight through one street, you fight through a hundred streets, except that later on in the game, they add a couple of sky rails as well. So I guess take the verticality of the combat up a notch. And it's worth noting that the final area of the game is actually the first area of the game, but just yes. in a different reality with more shit added to it. Yes, it's quite neat, yeah. but does add to that problem. There's also a little bit of backtracking involved when you're going around finding those free portal tears. That kind of requires you to go back to a large battle arena that you've already been in once before and have yet another large battle in there. Yeah, that's actually another negative, I'll say. That, that mission in particular felt a bit like filler. Yeah, I think that it's kind of, it's a pretty common thing as you come towards the final chapter of a game. I found that that filler content was really obvious to me when you have to fight through multiple levels of Comstock's yeah. gunship towards the end. You're kind of doing repetitive actions just fighting waves of enemies and at any point, and this was something that I actually felt on my first playthrough of the game as well, there's really not very many points in this game where it outstays its welcome, but that was one of them, yeah. working your way through that gunship. At least the finding the free tears takes you to three new areas that uh, you haven't explored 
previously, unless you did explore them previously and just wandered around getting a bit carried away. Who'd do that though, right? Who the <laughs> f- would do that? Like, yeah, what idiot would do that? Only an idiot would do that, right? A fool, uh, a damn fool. <laughs> added like 40 minutes. I think that much like Bioshock 1 and 2, the voice acting in this game was really stellar as well, both delivered throughout the various people that you don't meet, but hear through the voxophones, as well as obviously the main characters themselves. And uh, the only other sort of comment I'll make, this isn't a negative, but um, there wasn't really a final boss. The final fight no, of the game not. is just lots of waves, and it was really cool. It was a good fight. That's why I'm not complaining. I mean, really, the only boss I remember was Slate. I'm probably being an idiot, but do you actually fight another character? Apart from Slate, Lady Comstock's ghost, maybe. Yeah, that's the that that, that thank you. Yeah, that is yeah, the only other but, boss in the game that really comes to mind there. Yeah. yeah, but that didn't take away from the experience of it. It still felt like a really well told story, even without having to fight the bosses yourselves, which is rare for me. I like to fight the boss. I like that final fight, but it was done well. I think it goes to show just how story driven they were making this game that they didn't yeah. want to go with that typical video game thing. Was oh well, you've played enough of the game, time to drop in a boss. Yeah. They kind of they they measured that quite well and uh, made the bosses feel quite special when you did encounter them. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And the very final thing I'll say about this game is uh, is comfortably the easiest of the three as well. One hundred percent. Most of that owing to the fact that your health regenerates in the form of that magnetic shield i would say a lot of the modernization of the combat yeah. in terms of regenerating health that's what accounts for it honestly there's no longer any sort of oh better conserve your med kits and stuff like that yeah. or ammo because elizabeth will chuck you ammo. exactly that yeah. even money you know you're short on a couple bucks yeah. like well tough sh- in bioshock one and two but just wait a few yeah. seconds and elizabeth will chuck you a few hundred silver eagles exactly and she also does it with the assault so really you can't run out mm. of ammo if elizabeth's with you like in any way shape or form part of me does wonder if this game has a sort of behind the scenes adaptive difficulty thing where Elizabeth will in fact just stop chucking so much stuff at you if you're doing too well and if you're doing really badly she'll start to chuck more healing items at you for instance I do wonder if that plays a part in this although I've never taken the time to actually look into that it would be something that would make sense to include in this given just how many ways that Elizabeth can use to help you and again I'm drawing another parallel to Last of Us here but I'm pretty sure Ellie does the same thing as well she'll occasionally find useful stuff for you to use so what you're saying is the Last of Us ripped off Infinite they came out at quite similar times actually from memory i think or it's just another reality and that's booker and uh, elizabeth in that reality could well be so man i think that that's kind of our final thoughts wrapped up for this episode uh, i think both of us are coming away with a big old thumbs up for bioshock infinite and bioshock as a whole i think it's time we round off the episode with the socials you can as always find the podcast on spotify apple podcasts and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for total pop mode we also post regular video content of our playthrough stream highlights as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And just with a final request to our faithful listeners, if you wouldn't mind dropping us a like and a five-star rating on the various podcast platforms, it would really help out the show. We're really looking to push things forward, and we can only do that with your support, so please reach out to us. And with that said, that's it for this episode. We'll see you guys next week. Take it easy, goodbye.